Matthew chapter 27. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew for several years now. We're right down to the last couple chapters. And so, um, we're looking today, last week, just in way of review, we looked at the blessings of forgiveness. And uh, we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was denied by Peter several on several occasions, we looked at uh, the blessings of forgiveness and how Peter was restored ultimately, um, how Christ did not give up on Peter. And uh, we looked at the practical application of some things that we need to be aware of in our own lives. We need to be careful of self-confidence, which the disciples and Peter showed in verses 31 and 33 of chapter 26. We have to be careful of pride and prayerlessness and independence and compromise. And uh, we understand that uh, Peter's repentance was genuine. It was a repentance brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And uh, we made a statement last week, the reason we stay saved is not the result of something we've done, but because of the sustaining power of the Lord Jesus Christ to keep us saved. If it were left up to us, beloved, we wouldn't be saved one more second. But it's only the grace of God, it's only the power of God that he sustains his saving power in our lives. And we saw where Peter, in verse 35, he remembered the words of the Lord. He left, he went out to a quiet place, and it says that he wept and uh, over his sin. And when you, if you have any... Uh, uh, thinking that Peter was not um, restored, you just need to look over in the Gospel of John and you can see where Jesus meets up with him and actually restores him fully. But also you can find that out by reading through First and Second Peter. You see over and, ag- over and again in those little epistles that he wrote that he constantly tells us to be careful of pride, be careful of self-confidence, be careful that um, you're humble before the Lord, that your pride doesn't your independence doesn't get in the way of God using you in some way. And I think Peter knew that firsthand, and that's why he, uh, those two epistles are so focused on that. But last week, we looked at the blessings of forgiveness, and we saw how our God is a God who forgives. And we focused in on one verse at the beginning, First John 1, 8-9. to It says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, keeps us keeps cleansing us from all sin, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he keeps on cleansing us. And that's one of the blessings of God's forgiveness. It's not so a one-time deal. I mean, it's, it's continual. He continues to forgive us as we live our Christian lives day by day. Well, we know that Peter sinned not in malice. It's not that he hated Jesus. He loved his Lord. He loved being with him. But you might say that, that Peter's sin was born out of weakness. Um, several times Jesus went to the disciples and told them to watch and pray, watch and pray, don't fall into temptation. And they didn't do it. They slept. They didn't take the words of our Lord, the warnings of our Lord, uh, really to heart. But when he realized, when Peter realized what he had done, it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. In other words, he repented. He, he returned to the Lord. 
He went right back to where he knew forgiveness was. And we're going to see in stark contrast today in chapter 27 the attitude of Judas and the attitude of Peter and what the difference were between them. You'll see it very clearly. Um, We're going to be looking at today the life and the, the death in particular, of Judas, the disciple who betrayed Christ. So, follow along in your Bibles as we read the first ten verses of chapter 27 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, verse 3, his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the the potter's field as a burial place for strangers or foreigners. And therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave it, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. We see here a a tragic end to a life that was spent three years with the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Um, when, you, when you stop and you think of, of the life of Judas, he was just like all the other disciples in that he spent the same amount of time with the Lord Jesus Christ as they did. He saw the same miracles that they did. He heard the same teaching. And yet, for some reason, he ended up here on the wrong side of the tracks. And I want to look at you, want you to look with me, first of all, the tragedy of wrong repentance. The tragedy of wrong repentance. Last week we looked at the blessings of forgiveness. Today I want us to look at the tragedy of sin. The tragedy of sin. Uh, back in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 25, it says this Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. To shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, Amen. That's, that's that verse out of Deuteronomy 27, verse 25. Well, as we look at the text here, first of all, we see the traitor's suicide. We see what Judas saw in verses 1 through 3. And if you look at this text, we're going to be getting into the trial of Jesus next week, verses 11 on. And it's almost verses 1 and 2 and verse 11 and on all go together. And they kind of put this little this little blurb in there about Jesus hanging himself. This is the only gospel that does this. And so it's kind of a parenthesis almost. He starts talking about the trial in verse 1. And I think that 
that may be part of what Judas is observing. He's turned Jesus in. He's, he's got his silver. And he's watching this whole thing play out. And as Peter, even though he denied Christ, he was watching this play out as well. So they were able to see the proceedings somehow. They were able to hear what was going on. And it says, When morning came, in verse 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. See, they weren't looking for a judicial process here to see whether Jesus was guilty or innocent. They didn't really care. They just wanted him dead. (laughs) Bottom line. And they were going to figure out a way to get this done. And this was contrary to all the law that they knew as far as the rabbis and things like that. The first two phases of Jesus' religious trial were carried out at night. And they were carried out away from the temple, which was not part of their legal system. They couldn't do that. It'd be kind of like having somebody arrested here in Redwood City and you take them up here in the woods and say, we're having a trial right here. Well, that wouldn't be legal. You couldn't do that. He had first been brought before the former high priest, Annas, and probably in the hope that somehow they could come up, conjure up a charge, Jesus would say something or whatever, that would justify the death penalty. And when that failed, Christ was brought between the acting high priest, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and they got together the Sanhedrin, all the legal people, in the middle of the night, and they were trying to bring up witnesses, false witnesses, any care, just somebody that could say something against this man to help them render a death penalty against him because they were simply just tired of the grief that he had been causing them. And they hated the truth with a passion. And it was only when he confessed to being the Christ, the Son of God, that's when they finally discovered a way that they could destroy him. Even though he spoke the truth, he wasn't lying, he spoke the truth, he was the Son of God. They convicted him of blasphemy and being worthy of death. And we see that in verses 63 uh, 63 and 66 of Matthew 26. So he was sentenced to death for the truth, for telling the truth. You know, I don't know when you were little, if your parents ever said, you know, just tell me the truth, you won't get in trouble. Just tell me the truth. My daughter says that to our grandkids sometimes, and sometimes they're not so trusting. You mean we won't get in trouble at all if we tell you the truth? So they come back with a counteroffer, and they go through this process. But it's important to know that here Jesus wasn't lying. All right? He was telling the truth. He was declaring himself to be exactly who he was. And yet he was sentenced to death. And it says, when the morning had come, Matthew recounts here, all the chief priests and the elders and the people, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. See, they already kind of reached a verdict. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely a, a crazy trial that's going on here about his guilt, about his punishment. They did all that first. They had the, the first, you know, uh, two hurdles here done, but they still had two more. First, they had to devise a way to make their decision appear legal under rabbinical law, because what they were doing was illegal. So they had to conjure up a way to make it look at least legal. Mark mentions in 15.1 that in addition to the chief priests and the elders, they even had the scribes and the whole council there. So they were really tapping into the, the wisdom of this whole council to figure out how they could put this man to death. And then secondly, not only because they wanted to fulfill, they wanted to stay under the the radar of the law, but they also wanted people 
the public to understand, and, and the public already knew this, that, that all the trials involving the death penalty had to be conducted in the daytime. You couldn't have a lynch mob in the middle of the night. And it had to be done in the temple court. You couldn't have it out somewhere in a side street or in somewhere, else, somewhere else's house. They had to be in the temple court, and it had to be done during the daylight. And so they had to wait until the morning of this Passover Friday to really get the, the folks together and take care of business here as they wanted to do. And so the council themselves, as they got together, them, they, they gathered together themselves, and they wanted to reassert the charges against Jesus and reaffirm this verdict of the death penalty. You can read about that in Luke chapter 22. But after that point, they were concerned about those two things, but after that point, you know what? They basically dropped any, anything that was legal. They didn't really care anymore. They just wanted him dead. And you know what? In chapter 16, um, or not in chapter 16, but in, in, the, in the overall viewpoint of Matthew, if you stop and you, you look at this, the, the rabbinical law really required that a sentence of death could not be carried out until the third day. So, as we talked about before, they would convict him one day, then they'd have kind of a day of rest to make sure everything was, every I was dotted and every T was crossed, and then the third day they would actually be able to uh, have this person executed. And they didn't even care about that. It, it kind of allowed a time of emotional cool-down, you know, in case something was done wrong or whatever, they, they would give this, this person who was sentenced to death maybe one last opportunity to provide some kind of defense or, or something. But they didn't do that here. They didn't even bother to give them any, any of the requirements here. They just kind of pressed on right to the secular part of this proceedings. And it says that they bound him in verse 2, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, remember, Judas is sitting back watching all this. And before, you know what, Judas has seen Jesus get in trouble with the authorities before. He's seen several occasions where they escaped. God always provided a way out for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always delivered by his power, the Father's power, whatever. It never worked out to where they were actually going to murder him. But this was not the case this time. And so Judas is watching all this, and that's why it says in verse 3 there, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. Uh, this kind of goes to what, not just what he saw, but what he felt. Probably a good translation. I think that the King James says repented. That's not really a good, good translation. And even the, the ESV here, he changed his mind, is probably, it's more that he was remorseful. You know, he had, he, he had done something that he knew was against everything that he had been taught in the law. You don't go and make accusations. You don't go and turn in an innocent man. See, and it would have worked out okay if Jesus would have got out of this deal, which probably Judas thought was going to happen. Hey, I'll pick up 30, 30 pieces of silver, and then we'll be back together, and maybe I can repeat this thing a couple times. But see, Judas is sitting there, and he's watching this thing play out, and he's, he's beginning to, to understand that, wow, this is, this is not going to happen the way it always happened before. 
he may not be delivered out of this. And it says that he felt remorse. Uh, He really began to experience a pain that is not uh, far removed from, from profound guilt, which he was guilty of. I mean, when you think about what Judas did, I mean, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, and he betrayed him with a kiss, and he did it in such a way. It was just so distasteful, the whole thing. Plus, it was just plain wrong. I mean, there's only 11 other individuals who had that kind of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And Judas, being one of them, turned on the Lord. I mean, he, he was one of the 11 individuals, 12 individuals in, in whole, uh, title that were always exposed to God's perfect truth when they were with Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ always gave them a perfect example. There was never a time when they could look at Jesus and say, gee, I wish that he wouldn't have done that, or, oh boy, you know, maybe he should have done it this way. Sometimes they thought they knew better, and they usually spoke up. But I think that they didn't fully understand who they were speaking with at the time. These men were more exposed firsthand to God's love and compassion and power and kindness and forgiveness and grace than anybody else. And yet, Judas turned. He turned. I mean, he spent three years with Christ, gave him over for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, it's hard to understand someone that would... I mean, I could see if they had a rift going on or, or something, or they were constantly arguing. You don't see that. You see that, that those disciples were tight. They were, they were together. As a matter of fact, they were so tight, when Judas turned on, on Christ, they didn't even know it was Judas. That's how close of a group they were. But I want you to look in 2 Corinthians with me, just quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Because, you know... Judas was sorry for what he did. But, beloved, to be honest with you, sorrow doesn't cut it. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance, it says, a changing of the mind that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. So you can be sorry for your sin and still not have your sin forgiven. And that was the case in which Judas found himself. He felt remorseful. He felt, boy, I did something wrong here. And he was more lining himself up with the law that said you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be a witness against somebody who's not guilty. And if that person ends up dying because of your false witness, you know what? You deserve to die as well. That's what the law taught. That's why it was so hard for them to conjure up witnesses when they were having this fake trial for Jesus. People come forward and they try, but their stories wouldn't line up. They just couldn't get it together. And I think part of it was because they were hesitant to say something that wasn't true. They weren't just going to make something up. And then, this, then Jesus ends up dying and they feel like Judas felt. But his hypocrisy was so complete and so deceptive That even when Jesus predicted that one of his disciples would betray him, 
Nobody looked at Judas and said, he, I bet you he's the one. They didn't know. They simply did not know. They went around the room saying, is it I, Lord? I mean, he was so totally trapped in the darkness and the corruption of sin that literally he became, the Bible says, a willing instrument of Satan himself. In Luke 22, verse 3, it says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. So it wasn't just a simple matter of Judas betraying Christ, having a bad day and saying, oh, I don't, I don't like the way he's doing things. No, we know from our studies that even for that week of time that Judas was figuring out a place, he was scheming, he was looking for an opportunity to turn Christ over. And that tells me a couple things about Judas's heart. It tells me that it was so utterly hardened to the things of God that... Jesus himself calls himself that calls Judas a devil. I mean, Judas could not escape the divinely designed signal of guilt that reminds men of their sin. And and that's true. When we sin, God floods our hearts and our minds with a guilt. And depending on what we do with that guilt, do we respond to that? Do we go back to the Savior and say, Yeah, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry for my sin. Do we repent? Or do we make an excuse? Well, it's not really hurting anybody. You know, it's a private sin, or it's this, or it's that. Nobody ever notice. I mean, who doesn't sin? We begin to kind of water down. We begin to, in our own sick logic, make excuses for our own sin. And it's not here when Judas, it says, changed his mind back in Matthew 27. It's not that Judas all of a sudden, you know, had a a vision of God and, and, and was fearful of the Lord. That's not what happened. Nor was he really even afraid of men. Even though now he was discarded by the, the religious leaders themselves. Nobody appreciates somebody like this. But Judas's remorse, his sorry, his being sorry, was not repentance of sin. Totally different word. Totally different word in the original Greek. And what the word is used here, Matthew uses a word that simply means, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm regret. I regret. He's looking at what's happening to Christ, and he's watching this play out, and he's like, man, I'm sorry I did this. But he wouldn't repent of his sin. And therefore, he didn't escape the reality of the guilt. And therefore, it led to his ultimate demise. Genuine sorrow for sin is always prompted, okay, by God. And that genuine sorrow will produce repentance. It will produce a change of mind. But Judas's remorse here was not prompted by God. It was just prompted by his own conscience, by his own grief, by his own despair, by realizing, wow, look at what I did. I thought he was going to get himself out of the situation. He's not doing it. They're actually going to kill this man, and I'm the, I'm the one who turned him in. And he felt bad. Now, 
And in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, basically, that's where it talks about being a false witness. If you're a false witness and, and you, uh, it results in somebody actually being killed or being executed, you, you, yourself, as a false witness, deserve that same death. And see, it's unfortunate because he felt remorseful. He felt, you might say, sorry. But he went to the wrong place. He went to the wrong place. He went back to the religious leaders. Who did he seek out? He went back to the religious leaders. He didn't go to God. He didn't go to Jesus. Instead of looking to Jesus for forgiveness and trusting in his atoning death, Judah's perverted mind may have led him to believe that somehow dying himself could somehow fix things. Maybe if I go back and I give back the silver, maybe that'll fix things. Well, look at what Judas says in this situation. It says he brought the, the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And then he said this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Not that I've sinned against God, I've just sinned. Innocent blood is that whole idea that he's actually turning somebody over who is innocent, who's truly not guilty of the crimes that they are uh, charging him with. See, if he had really, truly, honestly been concerned about forgiveness of sin, and if he had really believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have approached Christ. I mean, he was there with an earshot. But somehow, he wanted to kind of help his own guilty feeling by returning the money. If you ever watch the show Cops, I watch the show Cops quite a bit. And, and you know, and these criminals get caught and, you know, they'll, they'll go on this wild chase and, you know, lives are threatened or whatever. Finally, they get him in the back of the car and they go up and they interview the guy and they'll say, you know, what were you thinking? I don't know, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like that's supposed to fix everything. And then, they'll, then they, after that, they'll usually say something, are you going to take me to jail? It's like, duh, do you think? I mean, they really kind of have a warped way of thinking. They think somehow if they can just say sorry, then everything will go away. See, he, he betrayed innocent blood. Judas knew that. But he didn't at all, you don't see him coming to Christ's defense. You don't see him saying, hey, wait a minute, I want to kind of take this all back, I want to change this. He just, he just wants his hurt to go away. And unfortunately, a lot of people come to Christ for that simple reason. They feel bad about something they've done. They feel bad about this. They feel bad about that. Whatever. And, and they make some profession of Christ when they really don't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. They just want the hurt to go away. You know, maybe they've tried drugs. They've tried the bottle. They've tried relationships. None of that makes the hurt go away. I'll try religion. And it's just another little goodie in their bag of tricks that they pull out to try. They're not really broken over their sin. They just want something to help the hurt stop, the pain stop. And that's where we find Judas here. He just wants something to make this, this guilty feeling go away. And he basically says, hey, what I did wasn't right. I betrayed innocent blood. 
And then you look at what he did down in verse 5. It says, And throwing down the pieces of silver, because they didn't answer him in a way that maybe he thought they would. I mean, they just basically looked at him and said, Hey, is it our problem, pal? <laughs> Who cares? We don't care about you. You're a traitor. We don't want to be around you. It says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. It's interesting, this, this, this word temple literally means to, it speaks of the inner holy place of the temple where only the priests were able to go. So Judas took these 30 pieces of silver out of disgust and frustration and he threw them into the temple where only the priests could retrieve them. He didn't throw it out of charity, you might say. He threw it out of spite. He's like, I'll show you. And he just chucks this, this pieces of silver at him. And he was forcing the chief priest to handle the blood money again themselves. It says then, it says he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Just hung himself. He was considering himself already cursed. I mean, even the religious leaders of Jesus' day wouldn't have anything to do with a man like this. He wanted the pain to stop. He had just committed probably the greatest crime in history. And maybe in his sick, sin-stained, warped mind... He thought, you know, the only thing that I can do is kill myself. I'm sure he knew Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, He who is hanged on a tree is accursed by God. I mean, we don't know Judas's mind here. But he, he definitely was trying to make some form of self-retribution for his sin almost as if taking his own life would solve everything. Now, I don't know if you've ever dealt with suicide or dealt with someone who's been in that situation before, but ultimately, it's a very selfish act. Very selfish act. I mean, he took his own life here as an ultimate act of self-punishment. But you know what? Death does not relieve any guilt, beloved. It makes it permanent. And it probably makes it intensified beyond any comprehension. Uh, You know, it was Jesus himself that declared, Hell is a place of eternal torment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said that over and over and over again. He said it's a place of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. In other words, it's never going to end. It's not like you're in hell for a hundred years and it feels a little bit better. No. It's all eternity. See, Judas not... he, 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 He cries out in this eternal pain in his guilt. But you know what? Killing himself didn't didn't solve anything. According to Acts one eighteen, he couldn't even do that right. 
says he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So apparently he even hung himself on a faulty branch and the branch broke apparently and he, that's how he died. I mean, when you stop and you think of the tragedy of this man's life, the tragedy of sin, the tragedy of wrong repentance. This is a man who, who took his own life and ended up not in heaven because he took his own life thinking, oh, kudos to you, pal. No, he ended up in hell. Because his repentance was wrong. His repentance was not, not true repentance. It was a repentance born out of emotional feelings, out of human thought. Suicide is a horrible, horrible event in someone's life. It just is. There's no, there's no way around it. I mean, you can't put a nice cover on it. It's a shameful, disgraceful act. And it's really violating what God tells us not to do. We shouldn't kill. And killing your own life is just as bad as killing somebody else's life. And so you see the, the tragedy just kind of unfold here in, in Judas's final moments of his life. And then we see the tragedy of wrong religion. Not just the tragedy of wrong repentance, but the tragedy of wrong religion. Well, what, what happens after this? Okay, Judas is dead. It says in verse 6, but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver. See, this is their hypocritical response. Because you have to understand, they, they weren't even allowed to touch these things after such a man had handled them in the dealing that went on. They were really blood-stained silver. They were unholy. But you look at what they do, they were, they were inconsistent with what their law told them to do because they, they did handle them. They say there, it is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. In other words, it was taken, this, this money has dealings with uh, money that was illegitimately paid and received to falsely accuse somebody of a crime that's going to end up in their death. But they didn't care. 30 pieces of silver is 30 pieces of silver, right? That's the way they're looking at it. Hey, we got a bargain. And you can see how hard their heart is. They didn't really care. And you can see that in the response to Judas. I mean, these were the religious caretakers of society. These were the, the spiritual people who were to come along the people and, and, and encourage them and lift them up and, and help them in their spiritual lives. And here's Judas turning to them in a state of, of, of just mental disarray and he almost cries out to them instead of God and said, hey, you know what? I, I, you know, I want this thing to... I've sinned. And the response is just like, who cares? We don't care. Do you think we care about that? We don't care. What is that to us? See to it yourself. You deal with it. 
See, that's what Jesus consistently said about the Pharisees. They constantly were taking the law of God and they were laying it as a religious burden on the men and women of society. And they didn't have any concern about Judas. They could care less. They didn't care about him any more than they did about the Lord Jesus Christ. Their hearts were cold. They were indifferent. Hey, if you're sorry, too bad. We did what we said we'd do. We paid you to get out of here. See, but because the Sanhedrin had paid the betrayal bribe, (laughs) that's who paid it. I mean, they weren't in a position here to punish Judas for doing what the law says not to do, that you're cursed if you take a bribe against an innocent person. So you see, they were very inconsistent. They were also very deceptive. Because they, had, they tried to hide their, their, their evil in public service. They got together and they schemed together, well, what are we going to do with this money? We can't put it back in the treasury because it's unholy. But you know what? Let's, let's go buy a, a cemetery plot for foreigners. We'll do that. In their mind, they're, they're so deceptive, they're thinking, hey, we'll get away with this. But the Bible tells us they didn't get away with anything because it's known as the field of blood to this day, to the time of, of this writing of the gospel. It was known still as the time of, or the, the field of blood. So everybody knew where the money came from and what happened. And it says there, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. To the day of this, this writing. There's even a place in Israel today called this. I don't know if it's the same one or not. Who knows? You see in verse 9 here it says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. I want to stop right there because if you try to see where Jeremiah says this, you're not going to be able to. It's not there. So you could actually look at that and go, Oh, is the Bible... Wrong here? It's actually taken out of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, this prophecy. And this was prophesied before Christ was ever even on the scene. And yet, everything, as God prophesies, happens, as we know. We've seen that time and time again. Well, why does he say, as Jeremiah says? You have to understand, in the Old Testament, in their mind... And Judaism is split up into the law, the writings, and the prophets. That's how they split it up. And in the Old Testament, the first prophet in the section of the prophets is called Jeremiah. So when they refer to the recorded prophetic books, just in general... It's like us saying the New Testament or the Old Testament. When they talk about the prophetic books, another way that they could say the prophetic books are the books of Jeremiah. Even though they're not all written by Jeremiah, it's just a a phrase they use. It was actually taken out of Zechariah. That chapter uh, 11, verses 11 to 12. But they counseled together and they decided to use this money for a potter's field as a burial place 
for strangers. And you could see how they could kind of build themselves up and make themselves look pretty good. Look at what we're doing for the community. And yet they're doing it with, with you know, money. It's kind of like the, the, um, the drug dealers that fix up the neighborhood. You know, put in new playgrounds with all their drug money and it benefits the people. And, you know, that's ridiculous. But that happens all the time in some communities. Well, here this was actually fulfilling that, that scripture. And you, you want to stop and you want to think, man, what in Judas's mind, I mean, as he saw this thing kind of play out before him, as he saw this thing kind of unfold, there was probably a point in time where he realized, wow, what did I do? Kind of like, I didn't know that it was going to get this bad. I didn't know that it was, you know, that Jesus wasn't going to be able to get out of this one. And I'm the reason that he's here. I mean, you can imagine the guilt that he's feeling. And the only way he knows how to deal with that is to go out and and kill himself, which is unfortunate, clearly. But that's exactly what happened. So you stop and you say, okay, well, what, you know, how does this, how can we apply this to us? How can we look at Judas's life, the tragedy of sin, versus the blessings of forgiveness? And you, you, you look at those two. You look at Peter and how he responded to what he did, which was bad. He denied the Lord three times, just as Christ told him to do. And on other occasions, Peter, when he was with the Lord, with God himself, when, when Jesus would say, A, Peter would say, no, 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 B. <laughs> I mean, amazing how bold he was. And yet, in the end, somehow Peter came around to understanding that God is God and he's not. He couldn't fix this. He had to go to the Lord. And that's exactly what he did. See, it's unfortunate that Judas never came to that conclusion. As deceptive as scheming, probably even intelligent. I mean, he was a treasurer. As he was, he missed the whole boat. He missed the truth that was right before him. He missed the truth that, you know what, there is, there's no back door. There's no, if you want forgiveness, if, you, if you're truly repentful of your sins, then you go to the only source of life that there is, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place to go. You can't go to anywhere else. I was watching a friend told me a, a, a story about, you know, in the, in the MLB, the, the baseball league, they take cases and cases and cases of new balls to a game because they go through hundreds of them in a game. And, but these new balls, they don't, they don't like to give the new ball to the players fresh out of the box because it has kind of a sheen to it and it's hard to handle. So they actually have a, a substance they call MLB mud. And this mud comes from one place. There's only one person in the United States that supplies, in the world, that supplies mud for the MLB to rub these balls with before they get into the game. And it's this guy down in Louisiana or whatever, and he's got this swamp, and his dad did it, and his dad did it before him. Nobody knows where the place is. But he goes out, 
three times a year to this place, digs up this mud, and even documentary talked about how he's got to skim it off the top just right, and then they refine it, and it turns into this like milky substance. It doesn't really look like mud. And it's just the right consistency of dirt and sand and everything to when you put it on these balls that it just provides enough resistance to the sheen and everything. It just gives them a good grip, and they, they have to use the same mud for every game, or you can imagine what would happen. I mean, oh, they got a different kind of ball than we did. So it it's, it's only comes from one place. You know, and I thought about how so many times as believers or as non-believers, we go to God because we want forgiveness, but we, 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 we kind of go in our own way, or we go somewhere else, or we do this, or we do that, and God is up there saying, you know what, there's only, there's only one place that you can have your need met, and that's in Jesus Christ. There's only one. There's not two. There's not three. You can't go try to be a good person, and that's going to get your sins forgiven. That's not going to work. You can't try to reform yourself. You can't try to change your image. The Bible says that, you know what? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It wasn't, you know, and if you want to go through him too, that's fine. No, he never said that. And that is is what's so hard to understand with Judas. He was there with the truth, the way, and the life for three years. Spent time with them. Saw the miracles that Jesus did. Saw him raise people from the dead, give back the, 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 the sight to the blind, heal lepers. He saw him even when it looked like, boy, this is going to be bad for Jesus, it's going to be over, the crowd's going to get him, you know, and he escapes miraculously. He saw all that. He saw God's provision supernaturally to that group of disciples over the years. Saw God's supernatural protection. And yet, he ends up in a place in life where he turned his back on all that. But you know what? That even didn't catch God by surprise. Even in Judas' death, God's word was honored and the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified. I mean, that's hard for us to understand, but you know what? That's exactly what happened. And I, and I want to ask you this morning, you know, what is your response to Christ? I mean, as you spend time with Christ, as you spend time with his word, as you, as you spend time with his people, what is your response There's clearly got to be some response. And Jesus says it's very simple. Either you're for me or against me. There's no middle ground. There's no no way that you can kind of inch your way in between the two. And just like Judas was against Christ, even though it looked like he was for him all those years, I want to ask you, where's your heart this morning? Have you gone to the only place that you can go to for the forgiveness of sin? Have you gone to the only Savior that God says there is, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to work the system? 
still trying to work something out here. Maybe there's some kind of a compromise or something. There's not. And Jesus never stuttered about his commitment level. He was very bold. He said, you know what, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and then you can follow me. Cross was an instrument of death, beloved. In other words, you have to be willing to give up your life and follow me. I want to ask you, where is Christ in your life this morning? Is he number one? Is he where he should be? Or are other things crowding him out? Time and work and family. And Be careful. Remember what he told Peter. Watch and pray, watch and pray. Stay vigilant, stay alert. The enemy is out there roaring about like a lion. You know, you, you don't want to be devoured by him. You know, stay alert, stay on your toes. In the day and age we live in, beloved, there's so much evil going on all around us 24-7. We just have to be committed to our calling as Christians. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would do it. That you would ask God for the grace that you need to believe, to repent of your sin. And that it would come from a a God-given repentance. Not just something that you feel sorry for, you feel sorry about. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we look at this tragedy this morning, the tragedy of sin. And Father, we pray that you would just move and work in our lives. Lord, that we would not fall into behavior that would be sinful before your eyes. Father, that we would do everything we can to watch and be alert and and pray that we would not fall into temptation. And Lord, we think how this man's life ended. What a wreck. Hung himself on a tree and the limb broke and down he went. And you wonder all the time that he spent with Christ, all the hours that they spent together, talked, and yet had no effect. None. Sometimes we can come to church and come to church and come to church and it has no effect. You'd pray that God would be gracious. That God would open your eyes, your hearts, see to see your need of His for a Savior. Because to be honest, you're not going to figure it out on your own. The natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, the Bible says. They're spiritually discerned. You need God's help. But God's there for you. He definitely desires that relationship with you that you could experience that love and forgiveness and grace that Judas missed out on. Father, we thank you for this time together and we pray, Lord, that you would just give us a good day. I pray that you would just uh, dismiss us with your blessing, with a song. And and Lord, I ask that uh, each one here that you would just uh, bless them this coming week, that you would help them to live lives that are honoring to you in this lost and dying world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.